All righty. Um, so this morning we will be in Hosea. I... And here we go. Uh, you don't have to click outside of the, okay, there we go. Thank you. All righty. Hosea chapter two. Um, I mentioned that Hosea chapter two is kind of broken into three sections. And we looked at that first section last week. Um, just by way of quick review, uh, we talked about uh, God's faithfulness. We talked about the reality uh, that Hosea is experiencing through the midst of all of this. Uh, while it's an illustration for you and I, looking back, it was something that he was living through. Um, there's this call to repentance. That's the first section. Uh, and as we look at that, we'll remember that there is a call to repentance, obviously a call back from idolatry, uh, because that's where they're at. It's where their um, entire nation, their kingdom was founded, and that's where they've been uh, in their existence we come to the second section, um, and as we do so, God talks about the consequences of Israel's infidelity, of their adulterous relationship, of their pursuit of other gods. And the third section, we'll close with this today if we get that far. Um, I've got a break factored into this. It might get long. Uh, the third section is the final and the ultimate restoration of Israel. Uh, it's something that we're looking forward to. And as we get to that portion, we'll see that there's a lot of promises, a lot of blessing that is promised to Israel that is yet to happen. Um, we'll also draw some of the application there because we, while we don't supplant Israel, the church doesn't replace them, we become, in some respects, co-heirs with them. And so there are some of those things that will be applicable to us, some that will not. Uh, Nonetheless, uh, there is definitely application for the church. So let's talk about reaping what was sown. Um, I want to read this, this passage, verses 9 through 13. This is kind of the second section. Uh, let's begin in verse 9. Therefore will I return and take away my corn in the time thereof, and my wine in the season thereof, and will recover my wool and my flax, given to cover her nakedness. And now will I cover her lewdness in the sight of her lovers, and none shall deliver her out of mine hand. I will also cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons, and her Sabbaths, and all her solemn feasts. And I will destroy her vines and her fig trees, whereof she has said, These are my reward that my lovers have given me, and I will make them a forest, and the beasts of the field shall eat them. And I will visit upon her the days of Balaam, wherein she burned incense to them and she decked herself with her earrings and her jewels. And she went after her lovers and forgot me, saith the Lord. As we introduced the book of Hosea, we talked about the consequences that God clearly laid out. This is what you will reap if this is what you sow. And in Galatians chapter six, if you'll turn there with me for a moment, Galatians chapter six, verse seven and eight. We have a very clear reference, and this is still applicable for you and I. While we may be forgiven all of the sin that we may commit, there may still be a consequence for that sin. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 7 and 8, 
Be not deceived, God is not mocked. For whatsoever a man sows or whatever he plants, that shall he also reap or harvest. For he that sows to his flesh shall of the flesh reap corruption. But he that sows to the Spirit shall of the Spirit reap life everlasting. Now, this isn't a reference to uh, losing or keeping or maintaining salvation. What it is a reference to uh, is the destruction that results, the consequence. Here is the nation of Israel. They are God's people. And as we close this, we're going to see this final and ultimate restoration. We find that God has not rejected and thrown off his people. But there is a consequence and there is destruction as a result of that. If you, if you notice all the things that are being discussed here that are being removed from Israel, all of, and, and not only that, being removed ultimately from the land, being sent into exile in Assyria. There is destruction, there is corruption as a result of that. But if we sow to the Spirit, we reap life everlasting. In other words, those things that count for eternity. In 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul writes about uh, building upon the foundation of Christ, and there's no other foundation that anyone can build on. He's very clear about that. And he talks about different building materials, hay, wood, and stubble, and gold and silver and precious stones, those things which will endure the fire of proving. And, in, and it clearly talks in that passage about, uh, listen, we're, it isn't a talk, uh, talk about salvation. He says these people are clearly saved, but those things, some things were sown to the flesh and they burn up. And other things were sown to the spirit and they last into the next life. There is reward for those. That's what's being discussed here. We as believers have the opportunity to live in such a way that is honoring and glorifying to the Lord, that is a clear uh, witness to the lost around us, or to live for ourselves. The nation of Israel, the kingdom of Israel, has chosen to live for themselves. They've chosen to live uh, in a manner that ignores and rejects their creator and all the provisions and benefits that he has promised. I want you to notice that it is God who will render to each man. It isn't anyone else that God himself uh, and as we look at the pronouns throughout this section, I will return. I will return. I will discover. I will, uh, all of these things. This is something that God is doing. This is his corrective hand on his people. Turn with me to Hebrews chapter 10 for just a moment. Hebrews chapter 10. Let's look at verse 31. He says, it is a fearful thing to fall in the hands of the living God. And whether we're believers or non-believers, the word fearful here, first of all, I want us to understand, it means that it is a, uh, an awe-inspiring thing. That it is something that within you and I would uh, stir up reverence and respect and even legitimate fear. For you and I who have who may choose to live outside of God's will, to sow to the flesh, we have the surety and the promise of consequence that we will reap what we sow. Now, you and I, as parents, we sort of understand this. We tell our kids, 
listen, don't do that. If you do that, this is what's going to happen. They do it anyway. We may imperfectly execute that consequence. But God in his infinite power and his infinite knowledge perfectly executes that consequence. It is just. It is right. It is corrective. It is loving. In Proverbs chapter 11, Proverbs chapter 11, verse 21, says, Though hand join in hand, the wicked shall not be unpunished, but the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. Now there's a certainty that consequence will come, that judgment will follow, that God in his righteous indignation and position as creator will execute judgment. Justice will be served. Now, it says, though hand join in hand, which it kind of made me think of Red Rover. You guys remember playing that game? The destroyer of little children on playgrounds for generations now? <clears throat> Almost as bad as crack the whip. But you join hand in hand, right? And, and you know, you, there's always that kid and everybody's like, oh, here he comes. And everybody, right? You, you take a different grip. You do whatever you can. We stand against that person running through the line as much as we can. The point here is that there is nothing to stop the Lord. It doesn't matter what grip. It doesn't matter how many layers. It doesn't, it doesn't matter. God will execute justice. Now, the other thing to note here is that the righteous, the seed of the righteous shall be delivered. There is a promise that we will reap life everlasting, those things that account for eternity, that we are spared the consequence. If we don't do wrong, there is no corrective action needed. If we walk in obedience, there's no corrective action needed. Israel, as a kingdom, has chosen to forsake the Lord. Therefore, they're reaping what they sow. Now, God first ceases all celebrations and festivals. If we turn back to Hosea chapter 2, he's going to take away, uh, seems like there's one in here. Maybe I got him out of order. If I jump to verse 11, though, he says, I'm going to uh, cause all her mirth to cease, her feast days, her new moons and her Sabbaths and all her solemn feasts. God ceases all celebrations. And I say all, and I underline it because we have to understand something here that there are those pagan and idolatrous festivals that are being ceased, but also a cessation of those things that he's commanded them to. We're going to talk about that here in just a moment. Turn with me to 1 Kings. We'll remember, uh, just to put us in a state of remembrance, that in 1 Kings, uh, as we're looking at the history of the kingdom of Israel, we find here Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that first Jeroboam, and he comes up with this plan to keep people under his control, prevent them from going to Jerusalem to worship the Lord. He establishes these idols. And he says in verse 32, And Jeroboam ordained a feast in the eighth month on the 15th day of the month, like unto the feast that is in Judah. And he offered upon the altar. So did he in Bethel, sacrificing unto the calves that he had made. And he placed in Bethel the priests of the high places which he had made. 
So he offered upon the altar which he had made in Bethel the 15th day of the month, even in the month which he had devised of his own heart, and ordained a feast unto the children of Israel, and he offered upon the altar and burnt incense. So God is causing to cease all of these pagan, idolatrous celebrations, festivals. And it may not be simply this one that is being referenced here. It may be any number of pagan festivals, all the worship of Baal that has happened and that has transpired through the generations from Jeroboam the first, the first king of Israel. Right? So we have those things being caused to cease, but we also have caused to cease by reason of the exile to Assyria, all the other celebrations that they were told to keep. And you're, I'm, I'm thinking of the big three that God commanded the nation of Israel all the men should go to wherever I establish my tabernacle, my temple. And at this point, that's in Jerusalem three times a year for these three celebrations. Ultimately, it ended up working only once a year, but right, tabernacles, Passover, and Pentecost. Those are the three God commanded them. They can't do that anymore. They're stuck in exile. They can't even walk in obedience to God because of what they've sown and what they are now reaping. But through the midst of this, there is a gospel thread. There is something that we do well to remember and to keep within our minds. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. For you and I as believers, looking back on the finished work of Jesus Christ, rather than looking forward to it, we have a different perspective on these festivals and those things. For you and I as believers, they have in fact ceased, and they've ceased forever. Colossians chapter 2, beginning in verse 13, he says to you and I, and you being dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, has he quickened together with him, having forgiven you all trespasses. Now this is speaking about Jesus Christ and his finished work. Blotting out or removing completely the handwriting of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to the cross. And triumphing over them in it. Let, there, let no man therefore judge you in meat, or in drink, or in respect of a holy day, or the new moon, or the Sabbath days. I want to just pause there. Here we have Paul clearly discussing for you and I how we are saved, and that is through the finished work of Jesus Christ and the reception of that by faith and that alone. Not anything that we do, not anything that we add, not anything that we maintain. Jesus has finished it. Completely forgiven us. We are justified, made as if we had never sinned and declared to be righteous by God in a single regenerative act that we receive by faith. And in the midst of that, he says, listen, therefore, because you are declared righteous, because you are declared perfect, because I have made you so, don't let anyone judge you in regard to holy days and Sabbaths and all of those things. Because it no longer is the law what, it, what is required in it, our adherence to it for a righteousness. It is a declared thing. It is justification. Now he goes on and he says in this, all of those things, those holy days, those drinks, those meats, the new moons, the Sabbath days were a shadow of things to come, but the body is of Christ. Right? So we have all of these 
things that are looking forward to that God has established as a picture of what Jesus was doing. So we think about the Sabbath, and we think about the rest and the cessation from work, the cessation, the ceasing, that's what cessation means. The ceasing, I don't know what's easier to say. <laughs> the ceasing, and ceasing is not even a word, of our effort, our favor with God, all of those things, it brings to remembrance those things. Now, it doesn't mean that it isn't important. Here we are, we're gathered together as part of the church. God himself says in the book of Hebrews, listen, don't forsake your gathering together. Right? There's a Sabbath. There are things that we still do in honor of the Lord. It doesn't, doesn't remove, it doesn't replace it, but in regard to our righteousness, I'm still righteous if I didn't make it to church. If I forgot to pray, if I didn't uh, go to Jerusalem for Passover, my righteousness is not caught up in my works. That is the point. For you and I as believers, this gospel thread is looking forward to here is God with his people. And as we get through this, as we look at this final restoration, remember that God made their celebrations to cease. He removes you and I from uh, where we were, brings us into his light, and we cease our pagan worship. We cease any other thing that we might add to the gospel, whatever it may be. But he also makes to cease our obedience as a mechanism for righteousness. A new and a better covenant that he's established with us based upon the finished work of Jesus Christ. This gospel thread exists throughout the book of Hosea, and we do well to note it. So here they are reaping what they've sown. He makes to cease all of their celebrations. Uh, in addition to that, God wastes Israel's quote-unquote blessings. So you'll notice here in the verse 9, he says, therefore, I'll return. I'm going to take away my corn. I'm, he's going to remove his provision. Your, your food, your clothing, and those things for celebratory worship, wine and oil. He's going to remove those things in verse 9. Not only that, um, in verse 12, he says, I will destroy her vines and her fig trees. Whereof? She says, these are my rewards that my lovers, anytime we read about lovers, those are the pagan gods. That's the illustration. Those things that, sh that are being pursued instead of God. Her quote-unquote blessings from all of these pagan gods. But you look at other societies and cultures, and as we get into uh, Sunday school, as we begin to study that, we're going to talk about some of the effects and the ramifications of having a worldview that is something other than biblical. And one of the things that we find is that within that, there is uh, no acknowledgement of where things came from. And in fact, we would find that there's also, not only is there no acknowledgement, there's a willing ignorance, as the Bible teaches, because I don't want to retain God in my knowledge. I don't want him to be part of my understanding, because that requires of me a few things. I have to, first of all, acknowledge that, well, God exists, and if God exists, and this is his word, uh, if he said he's given his word, then I have to either accept or reject that. I have to all of a sudden meet the standard that God has established, which is his righteousness. And I also, at that point, have to accept that I have fallen far short, as the Bible declares. So they don't want to acknowledge. In verse 5, he, she says, 
for their mother has played the harlot. She is conceived. Uh, then there's done shamefully for she said, I will go after my lovers, right? There's this consequence coming, this call to repentance. And rather than turn and reject that idolatry, she turns and pursues after her idols. And Israel has responded in kind as God has sent prophet after prophet. And God says, I'm going to remove those quote-unquote blessings, those things that I have clearly provided. Verse 8, remember, for she did not know that I gave her corn and wine and oil and multiplied her silver and gold, which they prepared for Baal. Right? All the things that they were using for their pagan worship, God says, I provided it. I was the one that gave it to you, not Baal, not, not that idol, not this pagan God over here, not none of those things. I gave it to you. Yet they chose to ignore that truth. And the same is still true today, that we choose to ignore what God has done, what he has provided. For Israel, this means that this kingdom will no longer be a land that is flowing with milk and honey. God's going to remove that. And even to this day, while Israel isn't totally barren, it's surely not an abundance. It's not a land that flows with milk and honey. Turn with me to Psalm 105. It's not the only place that God said that this would happen. In Psalm 105, verse 33. Here is God, and he's writing, the psalmist is writing about God's punishment of pagans, of those who were outside of Israel, the enemies of Israel. And this is what he says. He smote their vines also and their fig trees and break the trees of their coasts. Those things that would provide the necessities of life for them, God has removed. In Jeremiah chapter 5, turn there with me for just a moment. Jeremiah chapter 5, we're going to read verse 17. Jeremiah. Now, Jeremiah is a prophet to Judah, so this is a couple hundred years after what we're reading about in Hosea. They're not chronologically ordered, but the same thing is happening, and we're going to talk about that as we progress. Maybe not today, but at some point, we'll hit this in chapter 2. He says, and they, Jeremiah 5, 17, they shall eat up thine harvest and thy bread, which thy sons and thy daughters should eat. They shall eat up thy flocks and thine herds. They shall eat up thy vines and thy fig trees. They shall impoverish thy fenced cities, wherein thou, tr thou trusted with the sword. And this is a discussion about those who are going to invade Judah in a couple hundred years after, after the events in Hosea, when the Babylonians laid siege to Jerusalem. They're going to be removed. So, in other words, here are those who are acting like pagans, and what does God do? He treats them like pagans, those that he would judge. He removes the blessings, quote-unquote, from them. He makes it understood fully and completely that all of those gods that you were worshiping in falsehood were not, in fact, anything. They were graven images, wood, stone, whatever they were. Yet I am the true and living God, and you're going to reap what you sown. It's like there's a bunch of slides missing. But it's still representative, okay? You can go through verses 9 through 13, and you can look at all of the 
consequences that God says he will send. He's going to uncover, in verse 10, I will discover her lewdness. He's going to expose her idolatry. In the sight of all of those foreign gods, and no one's going to deliver her out of mine hand. I will visit upon her the days of Balaam. There's going to be a consequence, and this is what the consequence is for. Consequence is a result of her idolatry. You can go through it. It's not hard. You just have to understand the metaphor. But it's a slippery slope for you. And I want to look at this quickly because this is a slippery slope, and it's something that we do well to heed. We talked about as we, we worked through a little bit of the book of Hosea that the potential exists that we may have something that we have reserved, some idol, something that we allow to displace God in our life, or that somehow would bring him lower, would, would bring him from somewhere other than he is. Whatever that may be for you, and maybe there's nothing. I, I don't have any fingers to point at anyone. But here it is before us. And we need to understand that it is a slippery slope. We were out disc golfing a little bit yesterday as we turned to 1 Kings chapter 16. And uh, one of the Frisbees made it in the ditch, which is common when because we're not particularly good at disc golf. Well, I was going to go in there and get the thing and then jump over the ditch, which I did and didn't even fall down. But the prediction was ma made, maybe not out loud, but the prediction was clearly made that I was going to hit the mud and I was going to slide and I was going to fall. That's what a slippery slope is, right? It doesn't matter. There is no, it, one thing leads to another. It snowballs, as they say, and it just gets worse and worse and worse. As little faith as I had in me, perhaps we might hold in some areas little faith in God. 1 Kings chapter 16, verses 31 through 33. And it came to pass, as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, that he took a, to wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbaal, king of the Zidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. And he reared up an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. And Ahab made a grove, and Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel that were before him. Now, it says that here, he walked in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat. That's Jeroboam the first, who was the first king of the kingdom of Israel, who established idolatry as the foundational religion in that kingdom. And he says there was nothing, it was no big thing for Ahab to follow in his footsteps. Now, this is generations down the line. But all of a sudden, here is Jeroboam. He comes up with a clever plan. He was even an instrument of God and given four generations to sit on the throne because of his obedience to remove Baal from uh, the, the people there. We talked about that when we looked at Jezreel. But he was condemned because here he was leading the people in idolatry. Not only leading them, but codifying this is the method of worship in our kingdom. And so generations later, it's no big thing. It's no stretch of the imagination that Ahab would do anything like that. It's normative. 
right? We skipped a whole bunch of history, but you look out, as you go through the kings of Israel, not the kings of Judah, the kings of Israel, name one, it was good. From Jeroboam on, name one. Good luck. Now, Judah had good kings and they had bad kings. But for the most part, Israel, they were all bad. They started on a wrong foundation. In 1 Kings chapter 18, verses 18 and 19, this is Ahab, just to give you an illustration of how bad it was. Ahab, this is the showdown with Elijah on the Mount Carmel, the prophets of Baal. And he answered, I have not troubled Israel, but thou and thy father's house, and that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord, and thou hast followed Balaam. Right here is Elijah, one of the prophets sent to the kingdom of Israel to correct them, to call them to repentance that they reject. Now, therefore, Elijah speaking to Ahab, now, therefore, send and gather to me all Israel under Mount Carmel and the prophets of Baal, 450, and the prophets of the groves, 400, which eat at Jezebel's table. You have 850 pagan priests in the kingdom of Israel. And Elijah says, let's get them all together. Let's go up on Mount Carmel. Let's have a showdown. And that's exactly what happened. And they jumped and they screamed and they tried to wake up Baal and all these things. And nothing happened. And Elijah, with a simple little prayer that they may know that there is a God in Israel, called down fire from heaven. And the entire altar and even the dirt and the rocks that it was set upon was consumed by fire. And they still didn't listen. You, you'd think they'd get the point. Second Chronicles, excuse me, second, second Kings chapter 10. Second Kings chapter 10, verse 28. Okay, here we are. We're speaking about uh, Jehu. He, I said Jeroboam removed Baal from Israel. That was wrong. Jehu did that, right? So Jehu, he's the guy under. King Ahab, and he says, listen, if there's any faith, we'll throw Jezebel down. That's him. And then he goes through the whole valley of Jezreel. That was related to Jehu. He's now going to be the king. By the way, most of the kings in Israel came to power through murder. That's just how it worked. Same with Jehu. Now, he was told by God to go and do this. And he walked in obedience, and he gets four generations. He's the one that gets four generations on the throne as a result. I misspoke. Sorry. Verse 28. Thus Jehu destroyed Baal out of Israel, right? He gets all the prophets of Baal together. He deceives them. Hey, you think Ahab was a worshiper of Baal? I'll show you how to really worship Baal. Gets them in there. They're all put to death. Verse 29. How be it from the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nabat, who made Israel to sin, Jehu departed not. To wit, the golden calves that were in Bethel and that were in Dan. Listen, this national idolatry that we're holding to, we're just going to hold on to that. We'll get rid of Baal, but we're going to go back to our roots, which aren't godly. We're going to go and stand on the same foundation that Jeroboam established all the way in the beginning of the kingdom of Israel. He was this close to reforming it, and he chose not to, because he wanted what was offered. He, he wanted to be king. We talked about that. Second Kings chapter 21. So here we have this slippery slope. We have this, this pursuit of self, this pursuit of uh, control, whatever it may be. And we have the people led along 
as a result of that in idolatry. And it's become normative that here's Ahab, he, he ascends to the throne, he comes to power, and it's no big thing for him to inspire further idolatry within that kingdom. This is the way they operate. This is the way they live. This is how they exist within the kingdom of Israel. And then we get a few hundred years later in 2 Kings chapter 21, verses 1 through 9. Manasseh was 12 years old when he began to reign and reigned 50 and 5 years in Jerusalem. And his mother's name was Hephzibah. And he said, and he did that which was evil in the sight of the Lord after the abominations of the heathen whom, he, whom the Lord cast out before the children of Israel. I'll just pause there for a moment. This is the king of Judah. He reigned in Jerusalem. And I bring this up because look at this slippery slope. It started in one kingdom. It started in another kingdom. And all throughout the, the nation of Judah, the kingdom of Judah, we have good kings and bad kings. And the good kings will pull down the groves. They'll put to death the, the, the pagan priests. The, they'll reform and they'll call people back to repentance. And then we have the bad kings who bring back the pagan worship, the idolatry, the adulterous nature. And here's Manasseh. And he's following that same pattern. Verse 3, For he built up again the places which Hezekiah his father had destroyed, and he reared up altars for Baal and made a grove, as did Ahab, king of Israel, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them. Who was he watching? Hezekiah was one of the good kings. Hezekiah was one of the, who was a young man when he became king. They found the book of the law. He made everybody to read it. He reformed the country. Was he perfect? No, but he was pretty good. He falls in the list of good kings. Yeah, here's Manasseh watching what's happening over there in Israel just across, uh, just across the way. This is what Ahab's doing. That's what I'm going to do. And he built altar, altars in the house of the Lord, of which the Lord said in Jerusalem, will I put my name. And he built altars for all the hosts of heaven in the two courts of the house of the Lord. And he made his sons pass through the fire. He practiced child sacrifice with his own children. That's what that means. He used enchantments. He dealt with familiar spirits and wizards. He brought, he wrought much wickedness in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. This is, this is the heritage. This is the slippery slope of what's happening. Now, right, we, here we are as, the nation, as God's people today. And we may be harboring some idolatry, something that, that we're, we're withholding, that something that displaces God in our life or makes him less than he is. Whatever that may be, small or big, remember that it is a slippery slope that one thing will lead to another, that it will snowball in your life, that if you're going to hold on to this, then I have to compromise in all of these other areas to allow this to be permissible. And you look at the church at large, the church in general, what have we done? We've gone right down the slope. We're two steps behind society and probably even less than that. No longer do we stand firm upon the word of God. So what we need to do is drive a stake, right? Which sounds really nice. You're sliding down the hill, so you grab onto something. 
right? We might already be at the bottom of the hill. We're going to drive a stake. We're not going to move any farther from here. And not only that, we're going to move to regain ground. Turn to me to 2 Corinthians chapter 6. 2 Corinthians chapter 6. You and I as believers have the calling to be witnesses to the world around us. It is the commission, the great commission that Jesus left the church as he ascended into heaven. We get to be part of that. The church in general, us as individual believers, we are part of that, whether we like it or not. We're either like Ahab and Manasseh showing the world and we're just right behind them, or we're somebody who's standing firm, who the world looks at and says, what's going on over there? There's a difference. Why are they unwilling? Why are they standing there? Why won't they do the things that we do? 2 Corinthians chapter 6, beginning in verse, verse 14. Be ye not unequally yoked together with unbelievers. For what fellowship has righteousness with unrighteousness, and what communion has light with darkness? Now, normally, we, we, we look at this in the context of marriage, and I think it's an appropriate context to understand that in. But we have to understand that, that here we are called to be something different. Don't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. It is incongruous. It doesn't line up for you and I as believers to do the things and to operate in the way and to think about things the way the world does. We don't capitulate to what they're saying. We stand firm on the word of God. Don't be unequally yoked. Now, it doesn't mean that on occasion we're not going to see eye to eye because we will. There'll be times when, and, and in our community today, by and large being a politically conservative community, there's a lot of things that we would agree with a lot of people. But what happens is one bit of common ground does not equal make. Just because we have one thing in common doesn't mean that we are worshiping the same God, that we're looking at things in the same way, that we have the same worldview. In fact, we probably don't. We're not to be unequally yoked with that. When God says, listen, I'm driving you, my herd of oxen, my yoke of oxen this direction, and we're unequally yoked, and they want to go this way, there's going to be a problem. At that point, we have a choice to make. Are we going to follow them, or are we going to follow the Lord? What part does light have with darkness? And he continues on. What can concord or agreement has Christ with Belial or with, with Baal? Or what part has he that believes an infidel? And what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For you are the temple of the living God. As God has said, I will dwell in them and walk in them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. Wherefore? Come out from among them and be ye separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing, and I will receive you. And will be a father unto you, and you shall be my sons and daughters, saith the Lord Almighty. God is not here prohibiting interaction with unbelievers. That would be a wrong interpretation, wouldn't it? Jesus himself said, listen, you are lights in the darkness. You are salt. You need to be out there, but we're not yoking ourselves with them. We're separate. We've come out from among them. 
we're stranger, we're pilgrims in a strange land. And ultimately, we stand as witnesses, and either we're a good witness or we're a muddy witness. A clear reflection of Jesus Christ or something less. Come out from among them, be separate, saith the Lord. Now, this is where it occurs to me we have to be very careful about legalism. Like I said, I wrote about that in the pastor's note in the, in the bulletin. And, and because while it's good and we need to stand firm, we need to be unwavering in our commitment, we have to realize that not every believer, even the rest of the church, may not be in the same boat. Now, it doesn't mean that they shouldn't be standing firm. What it means is that God is dealing with them. We may be a mechanism and an instrument that God would use to call them to consistency in their walk. My place is not to judge that person or that person or that person or that church or that group. Or That's not my place. My place is to be a witness to the world around me. The Holy Spirit will do the rest, whether they're believers or whether they're unbelievers. Now, Depending on the nature of the relationship you may have with that person, it may look slightly different. It may be, uh, for lack of a better term, slightly more aggressive, more engaged, less passive. But we don't want to be Pharisees and say, listen, this is the only way, the way baseline fellowship in our church does it. That's the only way. And if you're not holding this standard of whatever it may be, then you really aren't spiritual or righteous or holy. That's what the Pharisees did. So while there is a call to purity and a call to repentance and a call to uh, walking with God in an unadulterated fashion, my place is not to judge. My place is to walk with God in an unadulterated fashion. I just want to put that out there, that we, we have to guard against that legalism. It's important. It'll ruin our witness. It'll ruin... Uh, it ruined all kinds of things. Leave it at that. Okay. We have time. Now, <clears throat> Israel as a nation, uh, while it's been restored to the promised land, and we see that at the end of the Babylonian exile, we see not only its restoration, but we see the, the kingdom that was divided now brought back together. Uh, as we enter the third section of Hosea chapter 2, it describes something that is yet to come. So when we're looking at this, we have to understand that it looks forward to the total restoration of relationship with God. It's coming back to the land and all of those things is dealt with separately, but it's total restoration of relationship with God is what is being discussed here. And the way I understand and I look at this, there's a series of blessings or promises or I shalls, things that God will deliver upon, and he extends those, those extend into the last days. They're things that are largely unfulfilled today. So let's read uh, verses 14 through 23 through the end of the chapter. Therefore, behold, I will allure her and bring her into the wilderness and speak comfortably unto her. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope. And she shall sing there as in the days of her youth, and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. And it shall be at that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall no more call me Baalai. I think that's how you say it. 
For I will take away the names of Balaam out of, their, out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. And in that day will I make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground. And I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth, and I will make them to lie down safely. Is there peace in Israel? No. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness and thou shalt know the Lord. Does Israel know the Lord? No. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens and they shall hear the earth and the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil and they shall hear Jezreel. And I will sow her unto me in the earth and I will have mercy upon her that has not obtained mercy. And I will say to them, which are not my people, thou art my people. And they shall say, thou art my God. We have through here this looking forward to this final and ultimate restoration of relationship of Israel with God. And as I said earlier, there are definitely parallels and applications for you and I as believers to make. So let's get into those. Number one. The first blessing that God promises is to allure Israel. Now, the word allure means to entice. The idea here is that all other options are worse than following God. Right? We all had to allure our wives. We had to make every other guy out there look worse than we did. And for some of us, that was hard. Really hard. Right? But that's what allure means. So here is God. He's going to woo Israel again. He's going to allure her. Every other option besides obedience to him, walking in close relationship with him, will look and be worse. And you look in as we read through the book of Revelation and we see those things that God is promising to come, it is definitely worse because that's where we find a lot of this. Now, the wilderness, he says, I'm going to allure her to the wilderness because that's where we all want to go. We all want to take our, our betrothed, our, our love of our life to, you know, the desert where there's nothing and it's barren and sandy and hot and miserable, no water, no nothing, right? What we have to understand, the wilderness can mean pasture. In other words, God is going to provide. And when I read that and I'm thinking to myself, God is going to allure me, he's going to draw me out. And he's going to draw me to pasture. And I thought, oh man, that reminds me of Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. He leads me by the still waters. Every other option is worse than where he's leading me. And we see he's going to speak comfortably to Israel. Here he is speaking harshly. This is the consequence for your sin. This is what is coming. But he's going to speak comfortably, which means tenderly, kindly, sweetly. Right? You, you see the picture here, you, and keep in mind, this is a marriage metaphor. Here is God wooing again his people. He's going to woo her with his ways. <laughs> oh, Andy Griffith. it's good stuff. <laughs> Anybody who knows the episode knows the episode. Uh, Revelation chapter 12, I digress. Way down. I digress. Revelation chapter 12. Let's look at verse 6. We're going to grab a few verses here. 
I realize that that's dangerous. I realize there's a lot of context and I trust that you will take the time to go and see whether or not it'd be so. But here it is. There's a description of Israel. There's also a description of the enemies of Israel attacking. And that's kind of where we pick it up here in verse six. And the woman, that being Israel, that woman that is being wooed, that is being allured into the wilderness, fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared of God. Now, a place prepared of God. Remember that wherever God prepares a place, even for the nation of Israel that wandered in the wilderness for 40 years, was a pretty good place. They had everything necessary, and their God was with them. What more could you want? It's almost, by definition, heaven. I, we had a discussion just the other day at our house. I think heaven is, we, we oversimplify it. But you get my point, right? It's pretty good. Wherever God is leading them, this place that he's prepared in the wilderness is better than where they were coming from and where what they would have gotten had they stayed. And they should feed her there a thousand two hundred and three score days. And if we jump over to uh, verse 14 in Revelation chapter 12, and to the woman were given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness, into her place where she is nourished for a time and times and a half time from the face of the serpent. Right, so here we have Israel being delivered into the wilderness. That God is alluring here. And I realize that there's a long jump from Revelation chapter 12 all the way to Hosea. But we, as we progress through Hosea, we clearly see that what's being discussed here are things that are not fulfilled. And throughout Israel's history have yet to be fulfilled. So if we're going to be consistent in our interpretation, we have to realize that this is talking about things yet to come. Again, I mentioned Psalm 23, that here is God. He's leading us by the still waters. He's providing everything necessary for us, that the blessing of following after him has the reward of reaping what we've sown. And Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me. Romans chapter 11. Now in Romans chapter 11, there's a great discussion and about the nation of Israel. And about their relationship with God and the relationship with believers and our interaction with one another. Here in Revelation, excuse me, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. For I would not, brethren, that you would be ignorant of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. That blindness, in part, is happened to Israel till the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. In other words, by design, God has blinded their eyes. Until all the Gentiles that are going to come to faith, come to faith. Until the time of the Gentiles, there it is. God knows. In his foreknowledge, we can talk about that offline, off but verse 26. And so shall all Israel be saved, as it is written, there shall come out of Zion the deliverer, and shall turn away in godliness from Jacob. For this is my covenant unto them, when I shall take away their sins. As we went through and we studied through the book of Romans and we, we got to this chapter, we highlighted the point that not, not all Israel is Israel. Right? That there are those Jews that are unbelieving that will remain unbelieving in the same way that there are Gentiles that are unbelieving and will remain unbelieving. God's not saying that every single Jew will be saved. He's saying that all that come to faith will be saved. Abraham was saved by faith. We're saved by faith. The nation of Israel is saved by faith. When are their sins removed? When I should think, 
when they enter the new covenant. When they come by faith to Jesus Christ. And this is a looking forward to of things yet to happen, of this restoration of relationship. When all of a sudden the nation of Israel realizes that that God over there, oh, he's pretty good looking, right? That she is allured, she is drawn over, that all other gods in comparison, quote-unquote gods, non-existent idols, pagan idols, are nothing in comparison. The second blessing that God promises in Hosea chapter 2, verse 15. And I will give her vineyards from thence and the valley of Achor for a door of hope, and she shall sing there as in the days of her youth and as in the day when she came up out of the land of Egypt. There's a restoration of the land. As I said, even today, Israel is in a land flowing with milk and honey. You remember when they sent in the spies? How did they have to get the bunch of grapes that they carried back? How did they have to carry that? on a stick between two men. I mean, this is not a normal bunch of grapes that you go down to the grocery store and buy. You're not holding this in your hand. They're, I mean, these big deal, big deal grapes. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. <laughs> Land flowing with milk and honey, abundance. Yeah, well, if you go to Israel today, and I've, I've never been there, I'm granted. Uh, it's dry, it's barren, it has all the, the things associated with it, but it, but it's not a land flowing with milk and honey as it was in those days. So there's a restoration of the land. He's going to give her vineyards from thence in the Valley of Achor. Turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 30 for just a moment. We'll, we'll get back to Achor in, in a minute here, but Deuteronomy chapter 30. As the nation of Israel is preparing in the book of Deuteronomy to actually enter into the promised land, and they're retelling the law, they're re-solidifying that with the generation that gets to enter into the land. That's what Deuteronomy is all about. We begin in the first five verses of Deuteronomy 30. And I shall, and it shall come to pass when all these things are come upon thee, the blessing and the curse which I have set before thee, and thou shalt call them to mind among all the nations whither the Lord thy God has driven me. And shall return unto the Lord thy God, and shall obey his voice according to all that I command thee this day, thou and thy children, with all thine heart and with all thy soul. That then the Lord thy God will turn thy captivity and have compassion upon thee, and will return and gather thee from all nations whither the Lord thy God has scattered thee. And the Lord thy God will bring thee into the land which thy fathers possessed, and thou shalt possess it, and he will do thee good and multiply thee above thy fathers. Right here is God, and he's saying, listen, when you fall to idolatry, I'm going to scatter you amongst the land. But when your heart turns back to me, I will bring you back to the land. And I'll prosper you. And that's exactly what we find happening at the end of the Babylonian captivity. Now, people talk about the lost tribes of Israel and all of those kinds of things. Listen, they're not lost. God knows exactly where they are. They're all there. There's not one that is somehow left outside or, or has been forgotten or lost. It's, don't get caught up in that. But nowhere does he mention this restoration of the land. In Nehemiah, now you remember that Nehemiah follows Ezra. 
Got to read the room, Sam. Got to read the room. <clears throat> Follows Ezra. <laughs> and uh, he's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. Ezra's gone ahead. They've built a temple. There it is. Uh, Nehemiah, he's gotten letters from the king. He's got funding from the king of, of Babylon. He's going to go in. He's going to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The city is, uh, he says, it's so bad I can't even ride my donkey through the streets. And that's sort of where we pick up. But here in the first chapter of Nehemiah, he says, and he's praying to God. He pours out his heart. Remember, I beseech thee the word that thou commandest thy servant Moses, saying, if you transgress, I will scatter you abroad among the nations. Whose cupbearer is Nehemiah? Well, he's the cupbearer of the king of Babylon. He's in exile. He's been scattered. And he says, Lord, remember the promise that you made us. Here we are turning our heart towards you. You said you would return us. He says, verse 9, but if you turn unto me and keep my commandments and do them, though they were cast out unto the uttermost part of the heaven, yet will I gather them from thence and will bring them unto the place that I have chosen to set my name there. I'll restore them back to the land. He's going to bring them back in. But not only that, we're looking forward to the promise of God to restore the land itself to abundance. He's going to replenish it with his people, put them back in Israel. And he's going to replenish the land. It's going to be a thriving milk and honey pot again. I don't know. He talks about the Valley of Acor. Turns me to Joshua chapter 7. Who knows what happens in Joshua chapter 7? Who knows what happened in Joshua chapter 6? It's a better question. Joshua chapter 6. Jericho. Joshua fought the battle of Jericho in Joshua chapter 6. Very good. Gold stars. Joshua chapter 6. Joshua chapter 7. They're headed over to Ai, that little town. They're like, listen, we don't even take the whole army. This is just a little town by comparison. Which was true. But in, as they took Jericho, what did God command them? He said, listen... You don't take any of the spoils. That's all mine. Don't take any of it. And we have this guy. What's his name? Does anybody remember his name? Oh, my aching neck. It was just a pain in the neck for the entire nation of Israel. And we memorial. No, we didn't memorialize him in that. But aching. And he takes some gold and he takes some of the spoil and he hides it under his tent. And they go to Ai, this little town that should have been a piece of cake. We're just going to go march in there. We'll take that one. It'll be a piece of cake. And they are defeated. And so they inquire of the Lord, Lord, you said to go do this. What's the deal? And he's like, listen, I also said don't take any of the spoil. And somebody did. And they find out that it's Achan. You can read the story there. And ultimately, they have to deal with that. They have to deal with that. Joshua chapter 7, verse 26. <clears throat> and they raised over him a great heap of stones. So they've put Achan to death. Um, so the Lord turned from the fierceness of his anger, wherefore the name of the place was called the Valley of Achor unto this day. And this is where this happened. Now, Achor literally means trouble. That's all it means. It means trouble. In Hosea, he says, the valley of Achor shall be a door of hope. 
right? That here it is where we, in the past, experienced trouble and hardship and grief at the hands of God now becomes a place of hope, a place of deliverance, a place of provision, right? Nation Israel, here you are. You've been exiled from the land. You've been uh, receiving the consequence for your sin. God has severed that relationship with you, but there is this hope, this restoration, this fixing of that relationship. In John chapter 10, as Jesus is speaking and he's talking, giving us the parable of the good shepherd, John chapter 10, verse 9, he says, I am the door. By me, if any man enters in, he shall be saved and shall go in and out and find pasture. Right, that here it is, there is one way into the Lord, this restoration of the land, this being drawn in by the Lord himself, being placed in that position, placed in that land, placed in that relationship, and we enter by Jesus Christ. <clears throat> the result of all of this restoration is rejoicing. Now, this isn't up here, but I'll just tell you, write down Exodus 15. And write down Psalm 106, 1 through 5. In Exodus chapter 15, the nation of Israel, he says that they'll rejoice as they did in the day when they were delivered out of Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 15, we find a song of rejoicing of the people for their deliverance. That here is God. He is faithful. He is trustworthy. He has moved on our behalf. He has shown his goodness and love to us in delivering us by leading us in the wilderness, so on and so forth, not in the wilderness, but by leading us to the places we needed to go by being with us. Turn with me to Psalm 106. Let's just read that. Psalm 106, verses 1 through 5. Psalm 106, 1 through 5. Ultimately, you could really read, we could really read the whole psalm, but it's long, so we're going to skip that. First five verses. Praise ye the Lord. Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for he is good, for his mercy endures forever. Who can utter the mighty acts of the Lord? Who can show forth all his praise? Blessed are they that keep judgment, and he that does righteousness at all times. Remember me, O Lord, with the favor that thou bearest upon thy people. O visit me with thy salvation, for I may, that I may see the good of thy chosen, and I may rejoice in the gladness of thy nation, that I may glory with thine inheritance. You and I, as believers, rejoice with the inheritance. We stand here, and as we look at everything, here is the nation of Israel led. Right? You remember the first place that God led them was to the Red Sea? Specifically so, and here's the armies of Egypt with all their chariots, Pharaoh at the lead, bearing down on them, and there is nowhere to escape. They're out on this little peninsula. There's, there's no left. There's no right. There's no retreat. They're stuck. And what did they do? They murmured and they complained and they disputed. Lord, Moses, you brought us out here to kill us. Over and over they accused Moses of that. And God told them, listen, be still and see my salvation. Be still 
wait upon the Lord. And what happened? He sends Moses over to the water. He puts his staff in. They walk through on dry land. You and I, here we stand before the Lord. We may have been led to a place where it seems insurmountable. Everything is going sideways. And we complain we are like the nation of Israel when, in fact, we should be rejoicing like they did in Exodus 15. We should be rejoicing that we are saved, that we are part of the inheritance. That we have been restored and delivered from darkness. He continues, and the third blessing is, he says in verse 16, excuse me. And it shall be in that day that the Lord saith the Lord, thou shalt call me Ishi, and shall no more call me Baalai, however you say that. Right? The word uh, Baalai there, that means master or Lord. That's what, that's what it means. Little L. That's your boss, as it were. Okay? Ishi, now that, that, that word can mean, Ish is the Hebrew word for man. Would you put the I on the end? Right? It becomes possessive. My man. So here is this woman saying, this is my man. This, this God over here, she's allured. She's enraptured at this point. Israel turns to the Lord and says, this is my man. All the way up in verse 7, you remember, and she shall follow after her lovers, but she shall not overtake them. All right, God's hedged her in at this point. She shall seek them, but shall not find them. Then shall she say, I will go and return to my first husband, to my man. For then was it better with me than now. Right? God turns Israel's heart to him. Just as he does with all of us as we come to salvation, we realize that there is no other option for me than to serve the Lord, than to be in right relationship with him. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 2. You can write down Isaiah 54. This is really the beginning of the spiritual restoration that God promises, this relational restoration that God promises His people. Now, we see this picture painted throughout this illustration of marriage as an illustration of the gospel throughout, throughout Scripture. We find it clearly here in Hosea, used as a negative illustration, but also, uh, and as well as a positive illustration. Well, we pick up on it again in, in Ephesians. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 14. Now, and I want to begin here. He says, for he, speaking of Jesus Christ, is our peace who has made both one. Right? And this is referring to Jew and Gentile. There's one. It's not different mechanisms of salvation. There's one mechanism of salvation, faith in Jesus Christ. That's it. Abraham was looking forward to it. And we know that because we, we read about it in Hebrews chapter 11. All of those looking forward to their faith, looking forward to their promised Redeemer all the way back from Genesis 3.15 is what saves them. But he says here that he is our peace. Jesus Christ is our peace, both Jew and Gentile, who has made both one and has broken down the middle wall of partition between us. There's no longer Jew or Gentile or heathen or anything else. There's Christian or non-Christian. That's it. Just as back in the days of Israel, there was Israel and not Israel. That was it. Those are two categories of, of people, if you're going to categorize people. And today, they exist the same, Christian or not Christian. 
right? Messianic Jews and all this. Well, it's a descriptive term. It's a misnomer. They're Christians. They believe in Jesus Christ just like you and I do. They're Christians. I don't have a problem with Messianic Jews, but right, is there an idol that's being held onto? I don't know. Trying to seek some identity that's different. Maybe I'm picking a fine bone. Probably picking a fine bone. That's me. Okay. But, but the idea is this. There's one lady that's being wooed by God. The church. The church. Christians. Now, jump with me over to Ephesians chapter 5. There's probably going to be those who ask questions this will Israel is God's bride and church is Jesus's bride. And listen, I want to ask you this question. Who is God? What? In the beginning was the word, was the word, the word was with God, the word was God. It seems to me that there's one God, not God and Jesus. Now, is there some distinction to be made between Israel and the church? Absolutely. We already said that. But what we're looking at here, who is God wooing? He's wooing the church. He's winning the church over. Well, it's applicable for the nation of Israel as his illustrative people is also true for the church, his people. Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25. Husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. Right here is Here is... All other options are worse than following Jesus. That's, that's where we're beginning. I love your wives that he might sanctify. He gave himself that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word. That he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. Right here is Jesus Christ who has shed his blood so that we might be completely forgiven. So that when we look at our Lord and Savior, we say, Ishi, right? My man, my husband, as it were, right? We are the bride of Christ. There's a day coming where Israel will realize Jesus Christ is the Messiah that's been promised. He's the one that they were looking for. He's the one that they crucified. He's the one that shed his blood so that they might be restored to relationship. And what will they say? They'll say, Ishi, that is my God. And they'll come to faith in Jesus Christ just the same way we did. Blessing number four, Hosea chapter two, verse 17. For I will take away the names of Balaam out of her mouth, and they shall no more be remembered by their name. All of these idols are forgotten. They are removed. So much so that we can't even remember their names anymore. Exodus chapter 23, if you'll turn there with me for just a moment. <clears throat> Exodus 23, we're going to read verse 13. God commands the nation of Israel before they enter the promised land. He says, and in all things that I have said unto you, be circumspect or pay attention to. That's what it means. And make no mention of the name of other gods, neither let it be heard out of thy mouth. 
Yet what have they done? Not only do we mention them, we worship them. We pursue them. We chalk up the blessings that you have given us, Lord, to these false gods. That's where they're at. In Joshua chapter 23, turn there with me. I don't even remember what this one says, so it'll be like a surprise. Joshua 23, verse 7. Here's Joshua speaking to the nation of Israel, uh, being, putting them in remembrance of what Moses has said. That's what he says in verse 26. That you come not again, uh, not, uh, that you come not among these nations, these that remain among you, neither make mention of the name of their gods, nor cause to swear by them, neither serve them, nor bow yourself unto them. So the nation of Israel has gone in. They've pretty much cleaned out the land at this point. We're nearing the end of the book of Joshua, and they're beginning to sort of give out the land. They're dispersing it amongst the tribes. And the warning is given, listen, there are those that remain here, don't begin to worship their gods. God said, listen, don't mention them, don't even name them, but now he's, he's clearly warning them, don't worship them. Yet that's what they do. Turn with me to Philippians. You can write down Isaiah 45. Um, Basically says the same thing, but it also says, listen, this is what you've done. Isaiah being a prophet, as we said earlier, uh, as we introduced the book uh, to the nation of Judah. And he begins to address their idolatry. Philippians chapter 2. Beginning in verse 5. He says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ. Who being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal to God. Now, that's not what he's saying to be mind. <laughs> Listen, you are not God, nor do we get to think about ourselves as such. That's not what he said. Okay. <laughs> Wait for it. Because <clears throat> there are those today that will teach that is what he is saying. And they are wrong. But he made himself of no reputation. This is what we are to think about Christ like. Jesus made himself of no reputation. And he took upon him the form of a servant who was made in the likeness of men. And being found in fashion as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. Wherefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him a name which is above every name that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow of things in heaven and things in earth and things under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. All of those idols are forgotten. When we put faith in Jesus Christ, we leave behind what we worshiped in the past, whether it's self, whether it's false religion, uh, you fill in the blank. What do we serve today? What is every tongue going to confess? That Jesus Christ is Lord. The one and only Lord. All of these idols are forgotten. The nation of Israel, as they are restored, will no longer follow after their pursuits of whatever they're doing. To be honest, Statistically, most Jews today are, are atheistic. They don't even believe in God. They have this heritage and they hold on to that, but they, 
they largely don't believe in God. Now you have the, the, the faithful, so to speak, Jews, the Orthodox Jews and those that, that do, but they've still missed Jesus. At some point, their idols, their heritage, their religion, all of those things that they're holding on to will be put down and every tongue will confess and every knee will bow before Jesus Christ is Lord. Blessing number five, peace. Verse 18, and in that day I will make a covenant for them with the beasts of the field and with the fowls of heaven and with the creeping things of the ground, and I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and will make them to lie down safely. Now listen, depending on where you're at, like if you live in Australia, everything wants to kill you. The plants, most of the animals, the ocean, the heat, the desert. Australia is a dangerous place. They're tough people. I don't know a single Australian. I just assume they're tough because everything wants to kill you, right? All the most venomous snakes and spiders, Australia. Almost every, I don't know if there are any non-venomous snakes in Australia. I probably am wrong about that because I don't know. But there's a lot of venomous ones, right? You got crocodiles. You can't go swimming. You got sharks in the ocean. I mean, are you getting the picture? It's dangerous. There are plants there that will kill you. Just, they're venomous plants. Okay? It's rough. Depending on where we live, even the creation that God has made is trying to kill us. Like when we go snowshoeing out in the, in the city of rocks and we take the whole family, we don't snowshoe with the kids in the back. I've never seen a mountain lion there, but I've seen tracks. I've seen, I know they're there. You put the kids in the middle, right? Cause you can't just lie down safely. Like God is promising to Israel. Here. Not only is he going to make them to be at peace with everyone around them, which is yet to come. I mean, you remember twice now since Israel came back into their to their land were, were granted a nation state after World War II. Twice they've been attacked by all their neighbors and twice they've had victory in a week or less. Once happening just almost literally minutes after becoming a nation, they were attacked. And supernaturally, God delivered them. I mean, they didn't have a military, they didn't have anything, but there they were. God is watching out for his people, but, he, but they're at war constantly. They have one of the most well-developed missile defense systems in the world because everybody's always shooting at them. There is a promise here that God says, listen, I will, I will break the bow and the sword and the battle out of the earth and make them to lie down safely. There's a looking forward to something yet to come. Psalm 91 Psalm 91 verses whew, the whole almost the whole thing We're just going to read a, a portion here He that dwells in the secret place of the most high shall abide under the shadow of the almighty I will say of the Lord he is my refuge and my my God, in him will I trust. Surely he shall deliver thee from the snare of the fowler, from the noise and pestilence. 
he shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. His truth shall be thy shield and buckler. There's protection. There is that provision of if God is for us, like we read about in Romans chapter 8, who can be against us? Right? We experience that even as believers living in a world that is antagonistic at best and persecutory at worst. We stand with God. That means we stand against the world. And the world persecutes us, not because it hates us, but because it hates him. We experience that same thing, but the truth is the same for us. God is for us, who can be against us? His truth, as it says, is our shield and buckler. It's what we stand behind, and it's what protects us. Now, in Amos, who is a contemporary of Hosea, also a prophet to the, to the kingdom of Israel, Amos chapter 9, verses 11 through 15, says, In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that is fallen, and close up the breaches thereof, and I will raise up his ruins, and I will build it as in the days of old, that they may possess the remnant of Edom and of all the heathen, which are called by my name, saith the Lord, that doeth this. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that the plowman shall take, shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes, him that soweth seeds, and the mountains shall drop sweet wine, and all the hills shall melt. Right? Provision. Here it is. And I will bring again the captivity of my people of Israel, and they shall build the waste cities and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and drink the wine thereof, and they shall also make gardens and eat the fruit of them. And I will plant them upon their land, and they shall no more be pulled up out of their land, which I have given them, saith the Lord thy God. Something yet coming in Micah chapter 4. Just turn a few pages back. Skip Jonah. Go to Micah. Chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. But in the last days it shall come to pass that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established in the top of the mountains, and it shall be exalted above the hills, and people shall flow unto it. And many nations shall come and say, Come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord and to the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths, for the law shall go forth out of Zion and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. And he shall judge among many people and rebuke Strong nations afar off, and they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up a sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall sit every man under his vine and under his fig tree, and none shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken it. There is a day coming, and God has promised, and here in, the, in Hosea chapter 2, looks forward to this day of peace. Ultimately, I'm convinced where Jesus is ruling and reigning in Jerusalem for that thousand-year period. And everyone says, listen, because this is where the law is coming. This is where he's ruling from. And they said, listen, we're not going to war anymore. Let's go see this thing that's happening over there in Jerusalem. I don't think there's going to be any mystery, but there's going to be desire to be there. If I was here, I would desire to be there. I have 
just like a small desire to go to Jerusalem today, but if Jesus was there, I'd have a bigger desire to go to Jerusalem. Right? That's all I'm saying. The faithfulness of God. And I want to highlight this. Turn with me to Leviticus chapter 26. Israel is going to be at peace with, with all of creation, with other nations. Uh, there won't be any plants killing them. Australia will probably be consumed completely into the ocean. I don't know. Okay. But they'll be at total peace with creation. The, the lion will lay down with the lamb, so on and so forth. You read about that in the book of Revelation. That's that period of time that's being discussed here. There's a looking forward to something. And I want to highlight this. I'm getting a little silly. I want to highlight this because this is God's faithfulness in spite of their infidelity, in spite of their adultery. In Leviticus chapter 26, the first nine verses, you shall make you no idols nor graven image, neither rear up a standing image, neither shall you set up any image of stone in your land to bow down unto it, for I am the Lord your God. You shall keep my Sabbaths and reverence my sanctuary. I am the Lord, the one and only. If you walk in my statutes and keep my commandments and do them, then I will give you rain in due season, and the land shall yield her increase, and the trees of the field shall yield their fruit. And your threshing shall reach unto the vintage, and the vintage shall reach unto the sowing time, and you shall eat your bread to the full and dwell in the land safely, right? Vintage and the sowing time. But you keep some seed so that you can plant it later. In other words, there's going to be an abundance. There will always be something to plant. You'll always have something to to be cleaning and to, to make into bread. That's the idea. There's no, no sparse harvest. Verse 6, And I will give peace in the land, and you shall lie down, and none shall make you afraid, and I will rid evil beasts out of the land. Neither shall the sword go through your land. And you shall chase your enemies, and they shall fall before you by the sword. And five of you shall chase a hundred, and a hundred of you shall put 10,000 to flight, and your enemy shall fall before you by the sword. For I will have respect unto you and make you fruitful and multiply you and establish my covenant with you. So the promise of God is this. Listen, if you worship me wholeheartedly and only, I will give you peace. And if there is battle, because this is looking forward in what we're reading in Hosea, we're looking forward to something. If there is battle, you'll be successful in that battle. Five of you will cause a turn a hundred. Reminds me of David and his mighty men, right? Or uh, Samuel slaying the Philistines with the jawbone of the donkey. I mean, what did he kill, like a thousand of them? I don't know. But I say Samuel, well, you know, Samson. Samson did that, okay? Thank you. Samson. The idea is this. They didn't do any of that. They fell to idolatry. They didn't seek the Lord. And as a consequence, God still gave them victory. He still went before them. They still went into the land. They still had victory. They, they over and over, God extended mercy. And for you and I, it's, not, it's the same. God's faithfulness, in spite of our infidelity, in spite of our unfaithfulness, those times when we succumb to our sin nature, we succumb to whatever it may be, God remains faithful. 
He gave them a conditional statement, yet he kept his end of the bargain despite their unfaithfulness. Not only that, but he extends now promise. Listen, here you are worshiping, literally worshiping idols, and I'm promising you a time of ultimate peace with all of creation. Don't even lock your doors. Go snowshoeing, put the kids at the back. Whatever, it's going to be safe. Peace to all of you. Six, we're getting close. Six, verses 19 and 20. And I will betroth thee unto me forever. Yea, I will betroth thee unto me in righteousness and in judgment and in loving kindness and in mercies. And I will even betroth thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. In verse 16, he says, and it shall be in that day, saith the Lord, that thou shalt call me Ishi, right, my man. This is looking forward to that betrothal, that marriage. Here is this, this, you remember the last week we looked at God giving that bill of divorcement to the nation of Israel, that being part of the call of repentance. You need to return unto me, but, but you're not going to be my people. In fact, one of the names of Hosea's kids is literally, you're not my people anymore. There's this reinstituting of this marriage covenant. This betrothal, this, this, and betrothal of that day and age, right? We think of Jesus and, and his birth and Mary and Joseph. He has to put Mary away because they're, they're only betrothed. They're not married yet, but they're as good as married. And ultimately, that's what God is saying here. In Psalm 85, Psalm 85, uh, verses 8 through 13, says, I will hear what God the Lord will speak, for he will speak peace unto his people and to his saints, but let them not turn again to folly. Surely his salvation is nigh them that fear him, that glory they dwell in our land. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. Truth shall spring out of the earth and righteousness shall look down from heaven. Verse 12, yea, the Lord shall give that which is good and our land shall yield her increase. Righteousness shall go before him and shall set us in the way of his steps. Mercy and truth are met together. Righteousness and peace have kissed each other. In other words, they're one and the same now. They've, they've come together. This declaration of righteousness and the peace that is associated with that. We talked about that peace. We talked about righteousness earlier, that justification being declared righteous as a result of their turning toward Jesus Christ. And I want to continue on that because he says that I will even betrothed thee unto me in faithfulness, and thou shalt know the Lord. In faithfulness. They're, they're no longer, Israel is no longer ignorant of God's love and mercy. You see throughout their history only glimpses and short intervals of rejoicing and acknowledgement of God's goodness. Even though it's been codified by the Lord himself to keep them in remembrance of all that he's done for them. Deuteronomy chapter 6 comes to mind, right? Teach your children when you rise up, when you lay down, all these things. When they ask you, why are we doing this? This is what you tell them. But the nation of Israel has rejected that. They will no longer be 
ignorant of God's love and of his mercy. They'll see it for what it is. In Hebrews chapter 8, turn there with me. Hebrews 8, beginning in verse 8. For finding fault with them, and this is speaking about Israel, and really Hebrews is, is a written to Hebrews, right? That's the audience. It's written as, in my opinion, one of the most masterful interactions of here's the Old Testament and how it represents the New Testament, the New Covenant God has formed and executed in Jesus Christ. This is how the old was a foreshadowing and a picture of what is now fulfilled completely in Jesus. So we have to understand that that's the overall context of the book of Hebrews. Speaking of Israel, for finding fault with them, he saith, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Right? So we have both kingdoms, Israel and Judah, Israel as a nation, one new covenant. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Right? He's, he's divorced them. He's put them off, so to speak. And we talked about that last week, and that's being referred to here. Verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. No longer are they written on tables of stone that are on the outside. We point out and say, this is how we should live. This is what we should do. No, they're written on the inside. In other words, the abundance of their heart is now the word of God. And so what comes out is obedience. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me from the least to the greatest. And I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities while I remember no more. And that he saith, a new covenant he has made the first old, of that which decays and waxes old is ready to vanish. It's no longer based upon our obedience to something or an adherence to a set of standards. Therefore, that keeps us in right relationship with God. No, it's now founded completely and wholly upon the finished work of Jesus Christ and that justification, that declaration of righteousness. In John chapter 17, John chapter 17, Jesus is praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. Jesus' high priestly prayers, they call it. Here as he agonizes over the, the imminent uh, persecution of the cross, his death there being uh, made sin so that we might be made his righteousness. And this is what he prays in the first three verses. These words spake Jesus and lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come, glorify thy son, that thy son also may glorify thee. As thou hast given him power over all flesh, that he should give eternal life to as many as thou hast given him. And this is life eternal, that they might know thee the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom thou hast sent. Now, I want to just make the case for you quickly that this isn't just Jesus praying for you and I or for the church. This is Jesus praying for all those who will come to faith, Jew and Gentile. There's no partition. There's, there's only one bride. And if we jump over to 2 Corinthians chapter 2 for just a moment. 
2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Out of much affliction and anguish of heart, I wrote unto you with many tears, not that you should be grieved, but that you might know the love which I have more abundantly for you. For if any have caused grief, he has not grieved me, but in part that I, but in part <clears throat> that I may have overcharge, that I may not overcharge you all. Verse six, sufficient to man. To such a man is this punishment which was inflicted of many. Uh, yeah, it's just the wrong reference. I don't know. Maybe it's maybe it's First Corinthians. Let me check. Nope, I don't know. Second Timothy. I'm gonna have to come back with that one next week because that was a. Hold on a second. Let me check. Second Corinthians four. Turn with me to second Corinthians chapter four. This was an important one. That's, that's second Corinthians chapter four, verse six. It says, for God who commanded the light to shine out of the darkness has shined in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All right, so here is the nation of Israel and they're being illuminated and enlightened by the love of Jesus Christ. While we were yet sinners, Romans 5.8, Christ died for us. He died for the nation of Israel too, in the midst of their sinfulness. In faithfulness, and ultimately, it isn't our faithfulness to him, but it's his faithfulness to us. His faithfulness to his word, his faithfulness to the promise that he's made to redeem mankind. And not only that, to redeem all creation. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, 2 Timothy chapter 1, Paul, who had a lot to lose in many respects as he was a Jew of Jews. He had the right training. He had the right credentials. He had the right uh, lineages. He was of the tribe of Benjamin, all of, those, all of those things. And he says, listen, I count it all as loss for the excellency of the knowledge of Christ. But he had a lot to lose. And in, in, it, it just illustrates for you and I our ability to trust the Lord. As he says in 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, for which cause I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed. For I know whom I have believed, and I'm persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have committed unto him against that day. And when Paul is talking about this, he says, listen, I've committed everything, my life, my affiliation, my heart, everything unto the Lord, and I know that he keeps all of it. Until that day. When God says that I'm going to betroth the nation of Israel to me, to me in faithfulness, there's a faith that is exercised in the nation of Israel to come to Christ, but it is ultimately his faithfulness that is being discussed. That he'll never leave them, that he will never forsake them.
Number seven, verses 21 and 22 in Hosea chapter two. There's only eight, so we're, we're close. And it shall come to pass in that day, I will hear, saith the Lord, I will hear the heavens, and they shall hear the earth. And the earth shall hear the corn and the wine and the oil, and they shall hear Jezreel. Now, this is an illustration of spiritual abundance. Okay, God's already discussed about making the land flow with milk and honey again. That's, this is an illustration, a metaphor of spiritual abundance. And I put the word chain here in quotation marks because it's an illustrative thing for us to think about. God says, listen, I'll hear the heavens. The, the heavens will hear the earth, and the earth will hear the corn and the wine and all those things. There is one link at the top that it all hangs upon, and that is God. Everything else is related to and completely dependent upon him. And that's what's being discussed here is their full dependence upon the Lord. As they've come to faith, as they've come to trust, as, they've, as they realize that he is faithful, they learn that they can trust completely. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians 3. Verses 21 through 23. He says, Therefore let no man glory in men, for all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come, all are yours. And you are Christ and Christ is God's. In other words, there's this complete dependence upon, upon God, completely and holy. And we find that reiterated here in 1 Corinthians. It isn't Paul, it isn't Apollos, as masterful as they might be in their presentations of the gospel and their clarity of doctrine and all of those things. It isn't that, it is the truth of God that we're hanging upon. It's his provision that we're counting upon. It is all of those things that is our complete dependence upon him. In Romans 8, Romans chapter 8, verse 32, I'll just read it to you and you can write it down. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him for up for us, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? If our dependence is completely and wholly upon God, who is willing to give even his son, how safely can we trust in him? With absolute certainty, with absolute assurance. Acts chapter 17, Paul is here speaking uh, up on Mars Hill up in the Areopagus, and he's speaking about that unknown God. We talked about this, I think, a little bit last week. But he says this in verse 28, and I think this is a succinct conclusion to this point, that God will hear that we are completely dependent upon him. This is what Paul says, for in him we live and move and have our being. As certain also of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. In other words, God made us, he sustains us, and it's only through him that we have any existence whatsoever. In him we live, we move, and we have our being. And here he is talking about this unknown God, this God that they are unaware of. This is the one true and living God, the creator of all things. The last blessing that God promises the nation of Israel and ultimately makes some uh, gospel proclamation here is in verse 23. 
says, I will sow her unto me in the earth, and I will have mercy upon her that had not obtained mercy. And I will say to them which are not my people, thou art my people, and they shall say, thou art my God. This is a gospel promise. This is something that is promised to not only, and, and we have this clarified for you and I in the, in the New Testament, this is something that is discussing Gentile believers. The nation of Israel will come, and they're part of that unbelieving populace that it comes to faith in Jesus, in Jesus Christ. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1. Verses 1 and 2. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the strangers or, or pilgrims, we, we studied that when we went through this book, scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, through sanctification of the Spirit unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ, grace unto you and peace be multiplied. I want to talk about that word elect for just a moment. We spent great time here, uh, and ultimately, uh, just to probably oversimplify, but for sake of our discussion this morning, right? Those who are elected, those are those that are chosen by God. He knows, but it says elect according to his foreknowledge. In other words, God's election doesn't remove our agency, but he knows who will choose it. Like I said, probably an oversimplification, but, but there it is, a balancing of election and predestination, all those things, in, in my opinion, and in, in the opinion of others, that's linked to his foreknowledge. God knows everyone from Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, when he promises to send a redeemer all the way through the end of time who are his. When Jesus was speaking in John chapter 10, he says, listen, all those that come unto me, it's those that are elect, those that he knows will come to him. And he says to you and I, and Peter is here writing, the elected are according to the foreknowledge of God. There aren't any counterfeits. You can't sneak in unawares. You remember in Pilgrim's Progress, there's those guys that jump over the wall. I can't even remember their name, but at some point they jump over the wall and they get on the path. They don't make it. God didn't know about those. Well, he knew about them, but he knew that they weren't on that path. In 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, he says, You are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people, that you should show forth the praises of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light, which in times past were not a people, but are now the people of God, which have not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. Sounds very familiar because it's a quote from Hosea, what we just read. Here is the Apostle Peter, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, taking that very truth, that promise to the nation of Israel, and applying it to the church. Because there's one bride, there's one betrothed. And they all come by faith. In Romans chapter 11, if you'll turn there with me, Romans chapter 11, verses 30 through 32. 
For as you in times past have not believed God, yet now have obtained mercy through their unbelief, that's the unbelief of Israel, even so have these also now not believed, that through your mercy they also may obtain mercy. If the nation of Israel is the example people of God for you and I, and we know that because the Bible says that all these things that were written were written for our example. He says, listen, you church believers in Jesus Christ, you are the example people to Israel. That they're watching, that they would see you, he says, that have not believed, and that through your mercy, through the reception of mercy that we have from God, they see that mercy. We clarify their understanding of truth. Because what's being written about in Hosea isn't written strictly to the nation of Israel. It's, strict, it's written to all believers. Those who were not my people, those who were outside of the nation of Israel will be called my people. They will, who had no mercy will receive mercy. Not that we replace Israel, but we become, and, and Hebrews, excuse me, Romans chapter 11 is full of this. He says, in fact, in verse 18, boast not against the branches, right? Don't boast against Israel that somehow we're better or that we somehow replace. He says, listen, there were some that were removed so that you could be grafted in. We're still part of that spiritual heritage. And last, hopefully not least, last, Romans chapter 9, verse 24. Even us, whom he has called not of the Jews only, but also of the Gentiles, as he, as he says also in Osi, which is the Greek form of Hosea, so here he is, he's going to quote from Hosea. I will call them my people, which were not my people, and her beloved, which was not beloved. And it shall come to pass that in the place where it was said unto them, you are not my people, there shall they be called the children of the living God. Isaiah, or Isaiah, also cries concerning Israel through the number of children of Israel, be as the sand of the sea, a remnant shall be saved. Right? Not all of them, not all of Israel is spiritual Israel. Not all of them are his people. There are those who are unbelieving. And just like all unbelieving people throughout all of history, they have a natural consequence. There, we have to understand that what applies to the Gentile world in regard to our sin nature and, and what we reap from rejection of Jesus Christ, hell, is the same that the nation of Israel reaps. There's one consequence for sin. Jew or Gentile, there's no difference in God's mind. There's believer or non-believer, Christian or not Christian. And that makes some people uncomfortable because we hold Israel as an idol. Now, we're not replacing it, and I want to make that very clear. We don't replace Israel. God has a special plan and purpose, and there are things yet to come for Israel that don't apply necessarily to all believers. But here, what is being talked about in, in, in Hosea, where we are called his people, this is a gospel promise. It's above and beyond, and here it's clearly applied twice in the New Testament to the church in its totality, to those who will believe in Jesus Christ. He continues on, <clears throat> Verse 28, Romans chapter 9. For he will finish the work and cut it short in righteousness, because a short work will the Lord make upon the earth. And as Isaiah said before, except the Lord of Sabbath, 
had left a seed who shall be a Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, verse 30, what shall we say then? That the Gentiles, which followed not after righteousness, have obtained a righteousness, even the righteousness which is of faith. That's a summary statement. Right, the Gentiles who, who weren't part of the household of faith, they weren't part of Israel, but they've received, they've been declared righteous now. And how? By faith. Just like Abraham. Just like it's always been. Verse 31. But Israel, which followed after the law of righteousness, has not attained the law of righteousness. Right? Because nobody can keep the law. The law as a standard of righteousness was never designed to save you and I. It was designed, and God tells us this, to show us our need. It's our schoolmaster to show us our need for a savior. Now, God didn't set Israel up to fail. He didn't say, listen, I'm going to give you this standard. I'm going to tell you to keep it, knowing that you can't keep it, knowing that it's going to be that which condemns you. They had the same promise that Abraham had even before the nation of Israel existed. They could have exercised the same faith. They chose not to. And I granted, we're speaking in general terms. There are those within the nation of Israel that will be saved and that were saved. I think Joshua and Caleb were chief among those. I think we're basically told that in Scripture. I think Daniel was one of those. But not all Israel is saved. One more verse here. As it is written, behold, let's see, verse 32. Wherefore, why could they not attain their righteousness? Because they sought it not by faith. Right? They, weren't trying, they were trying to earn it. But as it were by the works of the law, for they stumbled at this stumbling stone. This is the simple truth that tripped up Israel, that trips people up all around the world today. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of offense, and whosoever believes on him shall not be ashamed. Who is the rock of offense? Who is the stumbling stone? Jesus Christ, the promised Messiah, the deliverer from Genesis 3.15. The gospel promise is the same throughout all of history. That Jesus Christ, that the provision of God himself will save us. Here is God promising all the way back by the prophet Hosea that you and I could be saved, that Israel would be saved and that they would be saved by faith, not adherence to the law. And we find it confirmed in the New Testament. Find that simple truth put out there. Hosea chapter 2, call to repentance, summary, a clarification of the consequences, and then a promise of ultimately future but final restoration of relationship, and that by faith in Jesus Christ alone. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity that we have to be in your word. I praise you, Lord, for the clarity of the gospel from Genesis all the way through Revelation and your promise, Lord, to save those who come to you in faith, that you even know now who those are. We praise you and we thank you for the honor and the privilege of being adopted into your family. And Lord, we pray for those who are unbelieving. Lord, we pray that you would soften their hearts, that you would use us as witnesses, but Lord, that the seeds of the gospel would take root and flourish in their hearts and in their minds. 
We praise you, Lord, and as we have opportunity now to worship, to sing praise, and to give thanks for all that you've done and for who you are, Lord, we pray that you would be honored. We give thanks now in Jesus' name. Amen.